Next on Lectures in History, Karen Marco of State University of New York Maritime College teaches a class on the 1920s. She talks about politics, prohibition, and organized crime, as well as popular music and sports of the era. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Today we're going to discuss the Jazz Age. At least I'm going to discuss it, and your part of the discussion will be at the, at the end. So please write down any thoughts you have, questions, responses. That would be good. <clears throat> the Jazz Age, the period from 1919 to 1929, reminds me of the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times... It was the worst of times. Well, it wasn't exactly the best of times, but for many people, it was certainly good times. It was a great age of literature, uh, the golden age of sports, music, jazz, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which allowed women to vote in national elections for the first time. Uh, Radio uh, was becoming popular. It was the early days of Hollywood and certainly uh, the age of the automobile, the Model T. And automobiles were uh, for almost every, every budget. Those are the good times, which we will discuss. And it wasn't exactly the worst of times, although there were some very bad times. And it, the failures of that decade led to the worldwide depression in the 1930s and helped the rise of fascism in Europe. So let's begin with the, uh, talking about the, the politics of the era. <clears throat> it was the Republican decade. Uh, three, three Republican presidents, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, and the Republicans controlled the presidency from 1921 until 1933, and Congress from 1918, or from the 1918 election, until 1930. Domestically, it was an era of laissez-faire, an era of laissez-faire. In other words, give business a free hand. Now, that might be surprising to you because we had discussed the progressive era when there were a great many, uh, well, there was the Federal Trade Commission, there were other uh, commissions to control business. But in the 1920s, those commissions were manned by people from the industry, so they weren't doing much controlling. Internationally, we cut our commitments abroad, beginning with the failure of the Senate to ratify the League of Nations, Wilson's League of Nations. And these two policies taken together, laissez-faire and our reluctance to take our place in the world, although we were, had emerged from World War I as the most powerful nation, would prove disastrous to the United States and to the world in the 1930s. <clears throat> so let me just say a few words about each of the presidencies, beginning with Warren Harding. 
I think the best thing you can say about Warren Harding, he looked presidential. That was pretty much it. He looked presidential. It was the most corrupt administration that we had until that time, and maybe in all of our history. He escaped a lot of the opprobrium because he died in office, but before that, the Teapot Dome, the most scandalous of, of all the scandals, was revealed when it turned out that the Interior Secretary, Albert Fall, <clears throat> had accepted bribes from private oil companies uh, to lease public lands, public naval oil reserves. When Harding came from Ohio, he brought his pals with him, the uh, Ohio gang, and they had a very good time. Uh, they drank a lot, even though it was during Prohibition. There were um, wine women and song. They really enjoyed national uh, politics. Anyway, then he died rather suddenly, and the person who took his place, his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, was probably as different from Harding as two humans can be. Uh, Harding, uh, what can you say? He didn't do much. He didn't even talk. I mean, he knew how to talk, but he didn't talk. He was the uh, t uh, taciturn New Englander. He came from Vermont, but he had made his name by being governor of Massachusetts when there was a police strike, and he took a very hard line against the police, and that made him known nationally. As president, he worked very little. He brought his rocking chair with him, and uh, he would put it out on the porch facing Pennsylvania Avenue, and he would rock away. This is the person that said the business of America was business, and he did not interfere much with uh, business. Meanwhile, the stock market kept going up and up and up, and for, not for very good reasons or for any reasons, and there were warnings about this, that the economy could, could really bust. He, he, there were uh, warnings from the Federal Reserve Board, and others in his um, government, but he simply did uh, nothing about it. And there are lots of funny stories about Silent Cal, as he was called. One was when a, a woman was invited to the White House to have lunch with him and some other people, and she was very chatty. She turned to him and she said, Mr. President, I have a bet with my friends that I can make you say more than two words tonight. And he said, you lose. And that was his conversation for the entire meal. And then he could have easily run for president again. The, co the country was quite prosperous. Uh, but in fact, he decided not to run. He didn't tell anybody for a long time. He didn't tell his wife. He didn't tell his campaign manager, but at one point he called reporters together and he handed each of them a slip of paper. The slip of paper had 10 words on it. 
10 words were, let me see if I'm counting right, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. And then he walked away. And the reporters were running after him saying, tell us more, why aren't you running? And he refused to say anything. But he stepped down in, um, in 1928. The person who did get the nomination, the Republican nomination for president, was a very different kind uh, and, a, and a very interesting uh, person. And that was the mining engineer, uh, Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover probably spent less time in the United States than any president before or since. He was always involved in great projects in the, um, in the world. And he, uh, he, he was orphaned uh, at, at the age of nine, but was sent from Iowa, but he was sent to live with an uncle in California. And the uncle sent him to Stanford University. And he really became a self-made uh, millionaire. He was in his 20s when he was a millionaire. Uh, uh, he had no political history except for one. He ran for treasurer as a college student from Stanford University. But he was Secretary of Commerce, and uh, he had done a great deal. The President Wilson had sent him to Europe when World War I began, and his job was to get the American tourists out of, uh, out of Europe, and he did that. And then he helped the Belgians. Remember, uh, Belgium was overrun in the First World War, and he was responsible for Belgium relief. When he came back to the United States during the war, he was the food administrator, and his job was to see that the military got fed, but the home front got fed as, as well. And he did all that, and he did, it, he did it very well. Now think of the timing of this. He wasn't a Democrat, he wasn't a Republican. Both parties were interested in him running for president in 1920. Had he run for president in 1920, he would have been president from 1921 to the beginning of 1929, during prosperous times. And we would not, as we will be doing next week, be talking about Hoovervilles and President Hoover taking responsibility for the Depression. But in fact, that did not happen. He uh, ran for president in uh, 1928, against uh, Al Smith, the New, the New Yorker. And uh, he defeated uh, Al Smith, who was the first Catholic to run for president. During the terms of these three presidents, the country was disillusioned by the war. Remember, this was the war to save democracy. This was the war to end all wars. and. But people, many people, vented their frustration and their anger on antisocial acts and legislation. It was a time when traditional values were shattered, but new standards had not yet emerged. Uh, a case in point, for example, was the Scopes trial, John Scopes, 
when um, he faced William Jennings Bryan and the issue was uh, Scopes teaching uh, evolution in a Tennessee public school. It was actually against the law and William Jennings Bryan defended a literal interpretation of the Bible against uh, evolution. And uh, actually, uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan won that, and John Scopes had, in fact, um, violated the law by teaching uh, evolution. The decade began with the Red Scare of 1919-1920, and it was a response to a series of strikes in the United States. The, the, uh, the best known one was the one that crippled Seattle for five days. There was a, a strike there. And it was also a time for, uh, when the Bolsheviks were in power in Russia and had created the Common Turn. The Common Turn is the Communist International. And it led to the Palmer Raids in the United States. Palmer was A. Mitchell Palmer, a progressive, a Quaker, uh, who was the Attorney General of the United States. It resulted in the arrest of 4,000 people, immigrants mostly, most of them hardworking, just workers who did not speak English. They certainly weren't going to start a revolution here but many of them were uh, beaten up, people were denied representation, and uh, there was really no, uh, most of them had nothing to do with uh, radicalism. But there were bombings, there were a series of bombings in, in this country, including the home of A. Mitchell Palmer. And there was a bombing on Wall Street, and you could still go down to Wall Street, by the way, and see the bullets, where the bullets uh, were, holes uh, were. Anyway, uh, it led to some people without representation being sent back to Russia, um, and uh, it was a time in the United States that perhaps had it been better known, we would not have had a second Red Scare. The second Red Scare of the 1950s, the McCarthy era in this country, that one lasted much longer than the 1919-1921 and damaged the lives of thousands of Americans, writers, professors, uh, people from uh, Hollywood who were wrongly identified as being enemies of the United States. Xenophobia is very common, a fear of foreigners and the popularity of eugenics. Eugenics is the, I guess I can say, pseudoscience of improving the human species by a kind of selective breeding. And both were very popular in the 1920s. And I'll let that era pretty much speak for itself. One author, a zoologist, lawyer, whose name was Madison Grant, wrote a book published in 1916 called The Passing of the Great Race, The Passing of the Great Race. And his thesis was that Nordics 
were responsible for human development. By the way, in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler wrote a fan letter to Madison Grant calling the book My Bible. Another writer, a popular writer, he wrote for the Saturday Evening Post, and uh, millions of Americans got the Saturday Evening Post once a week. He urged immigration laws because he said, and this is an exact quote, immigrants would result in a hybrid race of people as worthless and futile as the good-for-nothing mongrels of Central America and Southeastern Europe. Mongrels, a word we use for animals, right, for, for, for dogs. And then there was Henry Ford, whose virulent anti-Semitism was spread in the newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, beginning in 1920. By the way, Henry Ford is the only American named by Hitler in Mein Kampf. The results of what these people believed and other people believed was very restrictive legislation for immigration in this country. Despite the fact that the lady with the lamp was in New York Harbor, and you know the words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses learning to be free. There was a temporary act in 1921 that restricted immigration, but then there was another one in 1924, the National Origins Act. And what the National Origins Act did was to have a quota based on the population in 1890, and the purpose of it was to freeze the country ethnically, to freeze it ethnically, to say whoever was here already, we, want a, we will allow in a percentage of those people to enter the country. And by the way, not very many, 150,000 a year. And Asians were excluded. Now, what that meant in practice was that the people who were allowed in were not necessarily the people who wanted to come. They came from Northern Europe. They came from Western Europe. The people who wanted to come were mostly Catholics, Jews from uh, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, from Italy, from Greece, from Poland, from Russia. But there were very severe restrictions on those people because there weren't a great many of them uh, counted in the 1890 election. This attitude towards immigrants led to many injustices, and the best known one was the execution of two Italian anarchists uh, in 1927 uh, for a crime they did not commit, and this, these are the cases of Sacco and Benzetti. When I say they were anarchists, these were kind of mild anarchists. They weren't bomb-throwing anarchists. And it really divided the country. Uh, do you execute these men or not? And by the way, they did not commit the crime that they were convicted of, 
uh, of having done, and it was the murders in uh, Braintree, South Braintree, Massachusetts, of two people. The novelist John Dos Passos wrote a poem in which he talked about the division of the country for the, uh, uh, on the Sacco and Vanzetti and the attempts to execute them, and uh, they were executed. And the night that they were facing execution, all over the world, people at American embassies were protesting the killings by the government of these two people. John Dos Passos wrote a poem to mark the event. He said, they have clubbed us off the streets. They are stronger, they are rich. They hire and fire the politicians, the newspaper editors, the old judges, the small men with reputations, the college presidents, the ward healers, Listen, businessmen, college presidents, judges, America will not forget her betrayers. All right, you have won. You will kill the brave men, our friends, tonight. All right, we are two nations. Madison Grant was also responsible and or active in the movement to prevent uh, intermarriage between, uh, Af between whites and African Americans, which leads us to another subject, and that is the second Ku Klux Klan. You remember the first Ku Klux Klan was right after uh, the Civil War? Well, this was the second one, and in some ways it was the same, and in some ways it was very different from the first one. It actually was a, a rather small uh, um, it, it, it didn't amount to much until it was taken over by two professional fundraisers, Edward Clark and Elizabeth Tyler. And by the way, they made their money, they saw an opportunity here by selling sheets, by selling sheets in children's <coughs> sizes, in adult sizes. And the second KKK actually had five million card-carrying members. Five million. This was not a fringe organization. And it was very powerful in the Midwest. <coughs> Indiana was the leading uh, Klan state with 350,000 members. Their targets, like the first Klan, African Americans, but mostly Catholics and Jews but they also went after boot bootleggers. Remember, this is during uh, Prohibition. And also, there was a kind of an auxiliary that was very pow powerful, and that was the WKKK, the Women's Ku Klux Klan. There were no women in the first Ku Klux Klan. And they acted quietly, but they did a lot of damage. They would talk... Uh, as they were hanging up their clothes in the, uh, in, behind their homes. And they would talk about the uh, Italian butcher, saying he was Roman Catholic, or uh, the Jewish uh, shoemaker. And all of a sudden, the Italian butcher and the Jewish shoemaker would not have any customers. They didn't know why. 
people who had been their customers for years suddenly weren't their customers anymore. And they would have to move away because they didn't have any uh, businesses. It was mostly important in small towns, and the small town, small town Americans, many of them, believed they were, grow, uh, they, they were losing out to urban Americans. And by the way, in the 1920, uh, for the first time in 1920, urban Americans, uh, there were more urban Americans than rural Americans. The Klan was brutal. There were murders, church burnings, brandings. And then it ended very suddenly. And it ended when the Grand Dragon, as he called himself, of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana was convicted of the kidnap, rape, and murder of a young woman. And since the Klan prided itself on protecting young women, especially young Protestant women, a lot of people gave up their Klan membership at that time. But it did stay alive, and it had a little more, um, and people became a little more interested in the KKK in the 1928 election when Al Smith, a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, ran for president. The 1920s, of course, was a time of prohibition. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution went into effect in 1919. It's the only part of the Constitution that was ever repealed. It was repealed in 1933 in the 21st uh, Amendment to the Consti Constitution. It was not just an experiment that failed. It turned out that most Americans did not want to be told that they could not buy alcohol. It led to the rise of, of course, speakeasies, who did you know, of, of uh, liquor being imported into the country, much of it from uh, Canada over the um, Great Lakes. But it, it didn't begin organized crime, but organized crime was very small until Prohibition. But this is the era of Al Capone, uh, Chicago, that toddling town, and also a great disrespect for the law and gang wars. And then when Prohibition ended, uh, it did not end organized crime. By then, they moved into other fields, prostitution, protection, and so forth. And it took well into the 1960s, actually when Bobby Kennedy was attorney general, for much of that, not all of that, but for much of that to end. Well, enough about the bad times. Let's say something about the good times. Okay. Charles Lindbergh, 1927, the boy wonder, he was 25 years old when he uh, left Roosevelt Field on Long Island to go to Le Bourget Field in Paris, 25 years old, and he flew solo. He was probably the best known person in the world in the mid-1920s. But he lost his luster because he accepted a medal from uh, Hermann Goering in uh, Nazi Germany. He was very taken with the German Air Force, and he was trying to make the point that we were not 
as well prepared as Germany, uh, which was the case. It was a great age of literature. Um, I know some of you read The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby, more than any other book, is the novel of the decade. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, a year later, The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's book, was published. So it was a golden era for American, uh, American literature, and it was also the age of the Harlem Renaissance. Most uh, writers, musicians, artists who we know and, and uh, today from the Harlem Renaissance were not from New York, but Harlem became the center of this uh, Renaissance, and the center of the center was the home of the uh, daughter of Madame C.J. Walker. I wonder if you remember Madame C.J. Walker? She was the only woman, millionaire, not to inherit her wealth in an earlier era, not so much earlier. And she had a daughter, Alilia, and Alilia's brownstone on 136th Street in Harlem was the center of the center. Uh, when she died in 1931, the writer Langston Hughes said, the Harlem Renaissance is over. I have a painting up there by Romare Bearden. He's my favorite artist of the Harlem Renaissance. You could take a closer look when you leave. And of course, it was the age of jazz, Cab Calloway, U.B. Blake, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and so many, and so many uh, others. It was a very rich period. And there was a sexual revolution in the 1920s. I think sometimes students think that's the 1960s. Yeah, that was another one, the 1920s. There were actually new words in the lexicon. Sexy, the word sexy dates from the 1920s. The expression sex appeal dates from the 1920s. And why the 1920s? Well, part of it was the liberation of women, a lot of women going to college for the first time in the United States, women gaining the right to vote the age of jazz, the age of Hollywood. Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud. It wasn't so much that people read Sigmund Freud, but they had a sense of what Sigmund Freud was talking about when he talked about sex. And he came to the United States. The dances, the Charleston, the Black Bottom. And it was the age of the flapper. And the flapper were essentially liberated women. My favorite line, and you've got to listen closely to this, from that era, the word neck ceased to be a noun, abruptly became a verb, immediately lost all anatomical precision. Does that mean anything? You want to hear it again? You're going to hear it again. The word neck, neck ceased to be a noun, abruptly became a verb, immediately lost all anatomical precision. Hollywood 
added a great deal to the uh, sexual revolution. There were films like uh, Up in Mabel's Room, and my guess is compared to films we have today, they probably will be, get, uh, you know, were, were very, very mild. Theta Barra was the vamp in the 1920s. Clara Bow was the it girl. Clara Bow started in silent movies and then moved to talkies in 1927. And everybody pretty much knew what it was. And it was the golden age of sports, and baseball uh, dominated sports. Uh, it was the age of Babe Ruth. Uh, Babe Ruth was a bigger-than-life uh, personality, and very self-promoting, by the way. Started as a very poor boy in Baltimore. Stories are well-known how he was a great pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, who made the mistake, if you're a Red Sox fan, of selling him to the New York Yankees. And then when Yankee Stadium was created in 1923, it became the house that, that Ruth built. At the um, end of the era, uh, Babe Ruth was making more money than President Hoover. And when, when uh, writers stopped him and said, do you think this is right, that you should be making more money than the President of the United States? He said, I had a better year than the President of the United States. Uh, and it, uh, he, it was, uh, by the way, baseball uh, almost didn't make it, and that was because of the Black Sox scandal in 1919 when the Chicago White Sox threw the series uh, to the Cincinnati Reds. And, and, uh, but uh, people didn't know it at the time. They actually didn't know it till a couple of years later that how dishonest it had been. Eight players had been involved. Probably the best known was Shoeless Joe Jackson. And uh, when he was going into court, he was stopped by a little boy who said, say it ain't so, Joe. And Joe Jackson said, yes, son, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it is so. And that could have done in baseball. All this came to light in 1921. But baseball hired Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And Kennesaw Mountain Landis took a very hard line. He fired the eight White Sox players that were, that were involved in, the, in throwing the games. He even fired a player who did not throw the games but knew about it. And he was angry at him because he should have reported this probably to the um, FBI. And in addition to baseball, college football attracted thousands and tens of thousands of people. The Red Grange of um, the galloping ghost of the University of Illinois. And Newt Rockne, Coach Newt, Newt Rockne, who was best known for its um, Notre Dame's backfield, the Four Horsemen. And uh, win it for the Gipper, win it for the Gipper. That was made popular to a later age by, in a film by uh, Ronald Reagan. It was pretty much a myth. It wasn't a myth that somebody had died many years earlier, George Gipp, but not when Newt Rockne was telling his players about it, win it for the Gipper. And then they were, for 
mostly wealthier people. There were other sports, uh, golf, Bobby Jones, uh, tennis, Bill Tilden, Helen Wills Moody, Little Miss Poker Face. So they, were, they became popular in the 1920s. And uh, Gertrude Ederle from Queens, the daughter of a butcher, in 1926 swam the English Channel, the first woman to, to do so. Anyway, we could go on and on about sports. You know, I'm a great baseball fan, but uh, I just want to tell you, tell you that. Now let me just go back to the best of times, the worst of times. It wasn't either the best of times, but it was pretty good, and it wasn't even the worst of times. For some, it was an idealistic time. Do I have the Kellogg-Briand pack? Yeah. In 1927, uh, Aristide Kellogg, who was Secretary of State, and uh, Briand, who was the foreign minister of France, wrote a treaty. And the treaty was to abolish war. That was only a few years after the end of the Great War. Remember, no one's calling it the First World War because nobody thought the world would be foolish enough to have a Second World War. By the end of the year, almost every country in the world had signed on to the Kellogg-Briand Treaty. And what the Kellogg-Briand Treaty said is we will outlaw war. We will have differences, yes, there may be border differences or other differences, but we will outlaw war. We will not solve our problems by war. Well, you know it didn't work. And I think mostly it's not even taught. I happen to have a professor who thought it was important, and he thought it was important because he said if you put yourself back to 1927, most people believed it. Most people believe that if a nation put its signature to this piece of paper, they would not go to war. And as a result of that, people went blissfully along as the world essentially was falling apart. So I, I at least want to, want to mention that. Okay. Now, People know the lines, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. What they often don't know is what follows. And what follows is the question I'm going to ask you about. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. So talking about, now of course Dickens was, was talking about the time before the French Revolution, he wasn't here. He wasn't, well, he had been here, but he wasn't talking about the United States. So I'd like to know what you think. Wisdom, foolishness, what wins out in the 1920s? Say your name, by the way. Uh, my name is Greg. Go ahead, Greg. So um, just referring back to your statement, um, wisdom and foolishness, I guess we were foolish as a country in an economic sense mm -hmm. because um, the buildup of the Great Depression was a result of <clears throat> all the uh, credit that was being given out to people to buy these stocks. So we were foolish in that sense. 
because obviously that resulted in the Great Depression and the stock market crash. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that was a foolishness. Okay, people were buying stocks on margin. The prices were going up and up and up, right? Mm. By the way, a few years ago, and please don't do this, but a group of students from New Jersey were uh, talking about what happened in the 1920s and the stock market crash in 1929, and they thought they would try it out. And what they tried out was to call stockbrokers and assemble a portfolio. They didn't have any money. Don't do it. It is against the law. But they were able to do it. That's the point, that despite the laws, and we're very careful about that. You can't, you could buy on margin, but it's a very small margin. They did that. Well, they were hauled before a judge who took pity on them because they were college students. But anyway, you're not allowed to do, to do that, so don't do it. Don't try it. Don't do not test the law, okay? Okay. All right. Anyone else have something to say about the era? What wins out for you? The foolishness? Think it was mostly foolish? Would you have liked to have lived during the 1920s? No. Kind of? Sort of. I'd want to be there when the positivity was like up and up, like the stock market, the breakout of um, literature, and then Charles with the going around the world and stuff alone. Yeah, mm-hmm. probably then, but not where the stock market started to crash. No, which is only at the very last time, October right. 1929. That's why we call the Jazz Age 1919 to 1929. Okay, so there was a lot that was going on. It was fun, right? It was a fun era, yeah, yeah. Very exuberant, very lively, okay. People had a very good time. Did they stop drinking? No, no. But in fact, we know there was less drinking during Prohibition than there was in the time before that or after that. How do we know? How can I say that? What would you look at? What kind of records would you look at to decide if there was more drinking or less drinking, or how much drinking? Uh, maybe records of the organized crime, you know that Ram that's speaking. Well, you know what? Organized crime people don't keep records. Mm. Well, that makes that's sense. a problem. <laughs> that's a problem that historians face. They do not keep records. Which maybe not. But who does keep records? <coughs> And what do you associate with a lot of drinking? What do you associate? What kind of records can you look at? Yeah? Um, Maybe dance halls and stuff? I don't know. Dance halls? Right, like, you know, I associate dancing. Dancing and and bars were connected to the dance halls. You read about dance halls, Yeah. yeah. I don't know how good their records are either. Maybe. Okay, we have another thought here. You should say your name, too. I'm Mike. Uh, There could be arrest records, like drunken disorderlies like that, and then also maybe hospital records with people. Yes, hospital records. What are we looking for? Like 
alcohol poisoning or any injuries due to being there was drunk. a lot of alcohol poisoning right during the during the uh, era but there were fewer deaths connected with alcohol right you know most people actually follow the law it's two o'clock in the morning and you're driving and there's nobody around and there's a red light you stop You don't have to give away secrets on camera, do you stop? Sure, most people stop, right? Why? Why do they stop? Because it's the law. It's the law. You don't go past a red light in a car, even though there's nobody around. Maybe you probably won't get a ticket, right? Okay. During Prohibition, most people did not buy liquor. Most people did not drink. What we recall are the speakeasies, right? Joe sent me, people drinking. College students drank, right? Not all of them, but a lot of them did. But most people did not. It didn't mean they were happy about the law. They weren't happy about the law. A lot of people weren't happy about it, but that was the law. And most people are law-abiding. If they weren't law-abiding, we would li be living in chaos, right? Okay. I don't know if you had a chance to do what I ask you to do with every class, which is look at the news. Is there anything in the news today that reminds you of what happened 100 years ago? Nothing? 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 Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Tell them your name. Uh, Trump said the, that we can't fit any more people in the country, but we can. He said so. that we can't, right. Yeah. It's taking a very hard line, as you know, on immigration, and again threatening to split up families, right, children from, from their parents. That did not happen during the 1920s. They did not split up children from their families. The country as a whole took a very hard line, not only in limiting the numbers of people who can come in, but very specifically saying these are the people we want, essentially white Protestants from Northern and Western Europe, and these are the people we do not want. And that was American policy until 1968. John Kennedy wrote a book called A Nation of Immigrants and helped to change the policy that was in the National Origins Law of 1924. Anything else? Okay. And next hour, the Great Depression. And who has the article? Okay, begin that. Everybody read it, right? All right, we're going to discuss the uh, 1930s. And I have a kind of a cheat sheet for you. And the reason for that is that there are so many agencies, alphabet agencies that came in under FDR, that honestly, it makes students a little crazy. So I've put the most important ones down, and I will give you that sheet, and we will use that as uh, our discussion in the 1930s. Okay, we'll see you on Thursday.
You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.